Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, July the 20th, 2023. It's O'Day on the West Coast, at least. Oppenheimer Day. The movie starts today. Uh, big event. I'm going tonight. We're going to do a number of shows about it. Yesterday, we did a show with Evan Thomas, one of America's leading contemporary historians, on the American decision to drop two nuclear weapons onto Japan. Um, uh, Thomas talked about what he called the moral ambiguity. He's the author of a new book, uh, Road to Surrender, on the end of the Second World War. He talked about the moral ambiguity involved in the American decision to drop the bomb. And I asked him whether in some sense it was perhaps revenge for the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor. And he acknowledged in part that it was, of course, what's interesting Amongst other things about Pearl Harbor, it was the first real effective and successful, quote unquote, assault on American territory. Um, and it's an interesting question in the context of my guest today. Sean Mursky has a new book out, We May Dominate the World, Ambition, Anxiety and the Rise of the American Colossus. It's a book about um, the history of American power uh, on the American continent itself between the Civil War and the end of the Second World War. Sean is joining us from San Francisco, just over the hill on Pacific Heights. Sean, um, do you think there's some truth to this? How does the bombing of Pearl Harbor fit into your narrative and your thesis about American control of its own hemisphere? So uh, the book finishes with the events of uh, World War II, in part because uh, Pearl Harbor and, and much of the rest of the world, uh, Second World War ended up sort of being a new turning point in American foreign policy, the sort of moment where American foreign policy switched from being sort of regionally focused to being globally focused. Uh, and one of the points I make in the book is uh, that Americans, I think, sometimes fail to appreciate that point, in part because in sort of view, in having gone through the Cold War and then the unipolar moment afterwards, Americans are sort of used to thinking about the world in sort of terms of Europe and Asia and, uh, you know, what happens across the oceans. But for the first 150 years of our history, uh, the most important region for American uh, security was the Western Hemisphere. And it's not surprising that American policy and American uh, grand strategy was focused on that region above all others. Uh, and so Pearl Harbor is kind of the like closing moment uh, for that. And uh, and in a lot of ways, uh, the end of the book for that reason. Yeah, it's interesting, Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I take your point on uh, the hemisphere, but the attack was from the West rather than from, from Europe. Mm -hmm. How important was Asia in terms of American thinking between the end of the Civil War and the end of the Second World War? in its control of, uh, of its own hemisphere, or were mostly Americans dominated by the threat from Europe, which is why they wanted to control uh, their part of the world. So I argue in the book that the United States was primarily concerned about Europe's great powers, uh, but there is uh, a limited exception vis-a-vis -vis Japan, and that uh, crops up in two different places. 
So first, uh, American Americans oftentimes, I think, don't realize this, but part of the reason that we annexed Hawaii in 1898 is because we were gravely concerned that if we did not, that uh, Japan would. And so uh, we can discuss the details more, but uh, basically the, the problem was that uh, Japan uh, had sent a number of uh, laborers into Hawaii to kind of uh, work on the sugarcane fields. And for a variety of reasons, by 1897, there was this crisis that developed between Hawaii and Japan over those laborers, whether they had voting rights on the island. And that crisis essentially led to uh, a moment where uh, the Japanese, well, first the Americans decide, you know, we have to essentially sign a treaty of annexation because otherwise Japan's going to get their hands on the islands. And there's this just incredible moment where the Japanese minister to Washington sends a secret message back to Tokyo, essentially urging Japan to launch a surprise attack on Hawaii in order to preempt the annexation of Hawaii by the United States. And it's just this incredible moment because, you know, it's uh, a little less than 45 years before Pearl Harbor. Uh, you have Japanese, a relatively high ranking Japanese diplomat uh, saying we need to launch a surprise attack on Hawaii. And Tokyo decides ultimately not to follow that plan. But I think it foreshadowed some of the tensions that would later arise with the United States in Asia, um, not just over Hawaii, but also over the Philippines and, and some of our other uh, territorial possessions in Asia. There seems, uh, Sean, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be two parallel, perhaps even slightly contradictory messages, arguments, themes in the book. On the one hand, this is a book about how great powers want to dominate their, their, their regions and very much in the tradition of realist international relations. Many years ago, I was taught IR at Berkeley by Ken Waltz, the father of this field, who suggested yeah. that great powers, by definition, want to control their neighborhoods. On the other hand, you also suggest that no power has ever dominated its region like the U.S. So uh, is that fair? There are these sort of dual themes uh, in the book. I think that's completely fair. Um, uh, for those who like to nerd out on the political science literature, um, uh, one of the more recent kind of uh, realist works is The Tragedy of Great Power Politics by John J. Mearsheimer. And uh, Professor Mearsheimer in the book focuses most of his attention on sort of great power politics in Europe between the various European powers over the last couple of centuries. And the United States, in a lot of ways, ends up being sort of the exception to the way he characterizes the politics of the period, in part because the United States was uh, in a relatively unique situation. It was uh, isolated by oceans from any other great power. And, you know, most of its foreign policy in the hemisphere ended up uh, being a little bit different from the foreign policy of other great powers, in part because of its privileged position. And so in a lot of ways, I think what my book, you know, at, 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 a, uh, at the highest level, the book just tells the story of what happened in a way that I hope is interesting to, to everyone. Uh, but for those who are kind of interested in the kind of academic uh, theoretical aspect of it, the book also um, I guess, fills in the story of why the United States did sort of rise in a different way from other great powers and and what exactly was different about the way that it uh, became a, a global superpower. Mearsheimer, of course, you don't need me to tell you this, Sean, is a very controversial international relations theorist, particularly in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Some people believe that he argues that we should accept, we in the West should accept the Russian invasion because it's in the nature of great powers to invade countries that threaten it. Um, 
is there something in your book, We May Dominate the World, which at least implicitly acknowledges the right of countries like Russia or perhaps China to dominate their neighborhoods in the same way as America dominates its neighborhood? I don't think so. I mean, one of the things that I think it's important for uh, people thinking about foreign policy and international politics and all that to recognize is that there's a distinction between sort of causal mechanisms and the normative sort of uh, values and spin that we put on things that happened. And so just to put that in concrete terms, uh, you can look at something like the Russian invasion of Ukraine and you can say, for example, that it was triggered by, let's say, as uh, Professor Mearsheimer might say, by NATO enlargement, and in particular by the promise in 2008 that Ukraine would join NATO. And you can say that as a result of that decision uh, by NATO, uh, Russia essentially decided uh, that this was a security threat it could not tolerate and one that it was willing to use force to respond to. And that may well be right as a sort of causal mechanism, uh, but that doesn't necessarily, I think, lead to the conclusion that well, that's fine and we ought to let Russia do it because it's, you know, this is just the way things are. Or you can still condemn the Russian invasion as being manifestly unlawful under international law. You can condemn it as being a humanitarian catastrophe and you can just condemn it by saying it's the wrong thing to do and we ought to help Ukrainians fight for their independence. And so I, I think in a lot of ways, the two questions are sort of separate. Um, and to sort of think through international politics in a clear-headed way, I think it's actually important that they be kept separate and that more sort of moral and normative questions not color the uh, the way in which we analyze how great powers act, in large part because if we, uh, if we think th through those questions too much through a sort of normative lens, I fear that we end up sort of misunderstanding why powers that act the way we do because we see the world in black and white when oftentimes, from those powers' perspective at least, it's many shades of gray. Another interesting aspect of the America that you describe um, is that it's a country powerful internationally, but also expanding internally. You talk about manifestly inevitable. There was, of course, the doctrine of manifest destiny in the West, the colonization, if that's the right word, of the Western lands, the decimation of, uh, of Native Americans, the taking uh, from the Spanish and others of, 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 uh, of the West. How does American appropriation, colonization, conquering, whatever you want to call it, of the West and its control of its own hemisphere. How do those interact? Are they kind of the same thing? So I think in a lot of ways, they're different. My, my book starts with sort of the civil war and the kind of ensuing period. And for the most part, at least the territorial uh, conquest aspect of it has been sort of finished by that point. Um, you know, the Mexican-American uh, War ends in the 1940s. We take half of Mexico. And by that point, you know, we filled out the continent. And in the wake of the Civil War, there is still some of the pacification campaigns against uh, the Native American tribes. And I guess I should put that in quotation marks because, uh, you yeah, know, you arguably it's, <laughs> it's, it's right. genocide. So, um, but it's a very brutal war that's being fought out there. But in a lot of ways, too, it's it's not, it's a... From a military perspective, I mean, we're talking about 20,000 troops, I think, for the entire American West at this point. It's just simply not like a large military commitment. Um, and so for the most part, the sort of period of manifest destiny has ended by the time that the Civil War starts. And Americans, um, I, I think there's a sort of, uh, it, it depends which part of the story they're looking at. But in the wake of the Civil War, uh, 
there's this prevailing narrative, particularly among Northerners, that large parts of the U.S. foreign policy up until that point, and particularly the Mexican-American War, um, were mistakes, grave mistakes. I mean, General Grant says it was a terrible mistake. Abraham Lincoln famously was against the uh, uh, Mexican-American War. And they saw these conflicts as essentially a manifestation of the internal divide between the North and the South over slavery. And the sort of prevailing narrative is that the slavocracy of the South was kind of uh, provoking these conflicts uh, in order to expand territorially, in order to bring slave states into the Union and to shore up its position kind of domestically. Um, you know, I, I I won't pretend that I have the expertise to sort of really evaluate that claim. I think there's certainly an element of truth to it, but there's certainly other factors that well as well that sort of factored into the overall manifest destiny uh, point. But by the time you get to the sort of post-Civil War foreign policy, I think there's a relatively clear through line through most, uh, through nearly all administrations, frankly, with a, with a few exceptions here and there, that is um, opposed to the same sort of territorial expansion, the same sort of annexation. And the, the big exception ends up being the Spanish-American War for reasons we can discuss. But for the most part, the sort of land hunger that Americans had before has kind of finished uh, or has run most of its course by by the time that you get to that period. You mentioned the slaveocracy, Sean, of course, driven by notions of racial superiority. To what extent was American policy in its own hemisphere in, in Central and Latin America bound up with the eugenics movement of the 19th century theories of uh, Darwinian theories of, of, of racial superiority? Um, were there American politicians? There's something about TR here. Teddy Roosevelt, he wasn't a eugenicist, but Certainly, there are things about him that are controversial that suggested that Americans yes. believe that as white Europeans, they were somehow superior to the uh, to the, the, the Spaniards of the South. Yeah. So race pay, plays a really interesting role um, in kind of U.S. foreign policy during this period. And I should say, I guess, first, and, and this is probably the assumption of many listeners, but um, the the heart of the uh, of my book is sort of focused on this period from 1898 to 1918, when the U.S. just sort of went on an interventionist tear through the through the hemisphere. Uh, it's really, I think, hard to sort of overstate just how often during that period we were invading and intervening in the affairs of our neighbors. Um, I think by one measure, we used force almost an average of three times a year uh, against one of our and neighbors. Yeah, the like, sort of the poster child for this. So I, ironically, he's not actually. Uh, he he's a he's an important part of it. I mean, three chapters of the book are really sort of focused on on his administration. Uh, but he and he certainly has some big interventions. But this ends up sort of being a process that kind of builds on its own momentum and really just culminates with Woodrow Wilson. Um, where you know, ironically, you know, ironically alone, I mean that's irony of ironies, of course. The, the great internationalist, yes. who of course was also a great racist, anti Semite. Perhaps in some ways it's not really that surprising. Yeah, well, and he, um, he, uh, you know, I mean, he comes into office basically trying to repudiate the interventionism of previous Republican administrations. He basically condemns Roosevelt, condemns Taft for what they were doing in the Western Hemisphere. And he promises that under his watch, everything is going to be different. And instead, it's just amped up, you know, 10 times. I mean, he ends up by 1918, he's occupied the entire nation of Haiti entire nation of the Dominican Republic. We've garrisoned parts of Cuba, Panama, Nicaragua, although I guess that predates him. 
Uh, we've intervened in Mexico multiple times, uh, including occupying Veracruz, um, you know, along with a number of other kind of, uh, uh, we have annexed the Dan Danish West Indies, which become the US Virgin Islands. I mean, it really is just this like streak of interventionism, I think, unlike anything else in American history. And so you would ask, you know, how much does racism sort of play into that? Uh, it, it's, the the answer is a little bit complicated. So first, no question, essentially all the policymakers during this period were racist in one way or another. Um, their views sometimes differed from each other. Wilson's racism was very different from, let's say, you know, TR's racism. Um, but all to one extent or another, we're looking at their uh, Latin American neighbors with less than sort of, you know, equality in mind. Um, and in a lot of ways uh, that both uh, made interventions worse and less likely. And by that, I mean, once the United States was doing an intervention in the region, so let's say once the United States is occupying Haiti, there's no question that the racism of American officials on the ground affects the way that that occupation unfolds. And so, you know, no occupation is spotless, but the Haitian occupation, you know, there were incre uh, uh, numerous credible reports of extrajudicial killings, torture, arson, um, all sorts of stuff that's just absolutely horrific to read about even a century later. And it's hard to say that that racism didn't play a, a significant role in that. On the other hand, though, um, I think sometimes uh, folks think that uh, the United States ended up intervening in Latin America as sort of a white man's burden uh, style uh, thing where the U.S. was like purposefully intervening in its neighbors affairs because it wanted to bring civilization to these, you know, benighted countries. And there's just very little evidence to support that. Um, the, uh, the fact is that the more racist Americans were, the less they wanted to get involved in Latin America mm -hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons kind of relating to... I mean, that strain of isolationism and racism goes together. Is there a country, you mentioned mm -hmm. Haiti. We don't have time to deal with all the different countries. We did a show with Ada Ferrer, um, a Columbia University historian, on her book about U.S.-Cuba relations and American history. Mm -hmm. Cuba, it won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a wonderful book. We had a great conversation. Does Cuba, perhaps, more than any of these other countries, capture all the ironies, complexities... Uh, of Americans' attempt to dominate its own neighborhood, its own backyard. Of course, beyond 1945, we can get to the Bay of Pigs, the missile crisis, and, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. I think Cuba is exemplary in a lot of ways because it's an island right off our coast that since the very beginning of the country, Americans have realized it's absolutely critical for our national security that it not be possessed by a foreign great power. And uh, Spain, it was never a problem from the United States' perspective that Spain held the island because Spain was a relatively weak power uh, and there was no real concern that uh, Spain's possession would, would menace the United States. But in the wake of the Spanish-American War, where we end up occupying Cuba, um, there's this sort of question of what do we do with Cuba at the end of the war? And, you know, the most obvious option, just letting it become independent, was taken off the table relatively early on because American policymakers feared that an independent Cuba would eventually fall prey to European imperialism and colonialism, and in particular that Germany would get involved on the island and potentially annex it and turn it into a colony. And so what the United States ended up doing is that it gave Cuba its independence, but conditionally. Uh, and the condition was something called the Platt Amendment, which basically made Cuba promise uh, to limit its sovereignty in 
a number of different ways. Uh, it couldn't lease portions of its island to foreign powers. It couldn't take on too much debt. But most importantly, in Article 3, it gave Americans the right to intervene militarily on the island. And uh, historians disagree about this, but I think the best reading is that when the U.S. inserted that right to intervene in the Cuban Constitution, it actually did so without any intent to sort of use that to meddle in Cuban affairs regularly. It was really, I think, seen as sort of a last resort, a failsafe. But what ends up happening uh, is that in 1906, there's a civil war that begins in Cuba. And by the end of the civil war, you have this just like fantastical moment where both the uh, government, the party in government, which is the moderates and the rebelling liberals are asking the U.S. to uh, activate Article 3 and intervene and, and reoccupy Cuba. And there's this just moment where you have TR, who I think has this reputation as, you know, this arch imperialist, and he is just stomping around his vacation home um, and, and complaining about the fact that the Cubans are trying to get him to reoccupy the island and saying, absolutely not, like, we cannot do this. Like, why can't they just deal with their own affairs? Like, we don't want to be involved. But the problem was the, the Platinum Amendment had set up all these perverse incentives. And so the U.S. ends up reoccupying Cuba in 1906. Uh, it occupies it through 1909. Um, and then afterwards, the kind of conclusion among American policymakers was we need to micromanage Cuban affairs to prevent that from ever happening again. And so the Platinum Amendment starts turning into this you know, tool for kind of overseeing a domestic kind of Cuban affairs, these like individual pieces of legislation. Um, and of course, that doesn't really stop the U.S. from getting involved. And so in future years, it launches additional interventions. And in general, Cuba just becomes the story of how the U.S. kind of naively sets out thinking that it can fix the sort of potential instability and the potential problems that it sees in its neighbors uh, with these like little tweaks, these silver bullets. And instead, it just gets drawn further and further into their internal affairs in ways that eventually culminate in, you know, large scale occupations and military interventions. Sean, you're talking to me from San Francisco and Pacific Heights. So far, you sound like a San Francisco progressive, but you're not. You're, uh, you're part of the Federalist Society. You clerked for uh, the Honorable Samuel Alito uh, and the Honorable Brett Kavanaugh. You're on the right of the American politics, a conservative. I'm guessing not much of a Trumpian. You're involved with the Hoover Institute too. Is there a political dimension here as a, obviously a, a, a proud conservative? Are you suggesting something that perhaps the liberals of San Francisco, your neighbors in Pacific Heights would, uh, would be very angry about? Uh, I hope not. I mean, the book was uh, one of the nice things about, I think, history and also foreign policy, and especially the history of foreign policy, is that at least in theory, it ends up being less of a sort of partisan free for all than a lot of other areas. And so, you know, I've been working on this book for eight years. And uh, throughout the sort of mission has always been just to tell the story kind of as honestly as possible. And so, um, you know, as you mentioned, the, the the story of kind of what the United States was doing in the region at this time is not necessarily a, a happy story. It's not a story that reflects the United States at its best, but it's a part of our history. And I think it's part of our history that we need to recognize, particularly because it affects contemporary politics in a number of ways and because it's it's relevant to draw kind of lessons for, for foreign policy today. So I would hope that uh, it would be the book would be read as sort of being a sort of neutral straight down the middle. No, uh, it sounds more, you know, I'm guessing that Joe Biden would like this more than Donald Trump. Um, what does it suggest for our current, our American current policy on, in terms of Central and um, Central America, Latin America? We've done so many shows on the issue of refugees. Some people argue we should 
demilitarize the southern border. Others uh, tell the story of their own humiliation in coming to America. Given the, the current relationship seems to be dominated by refugees from Central America, is there something in your book that offers a solution to a seemingly intractable problem? You know, I can't say that on the refugee issue that there's much to be, um, that the book has uh, much direct relevance on. I think the one question, though, that's starting to become a bigger issue is the um, the expansion of Chinese influence in Latin America. And uh, as you might have seen in the last, uh, I guess, month or two, the Wall Street Journal has reported that the uh, Chinese military has set up, I think, four uh, electronic listening stations, spy stations in Cuba to listen to American military traffic on the uh, on the Gulf Coast. Um, and that there's also, I think, talks between the two nations to set up a joint military training facility that could, in theory, see Chinese troops permanently stationed in uh, Cuba. And one of the um, one of the I mean, the through line through the book is the extent to which the United States has historically not tolerated, you know, the presence of great powers in its hemisphere. Um, and I think more and more we're likely to see a discussion of kind of do we bring the Monroe Doctrine back? Do we kind of continue uh, how, how aggressively, in other words, do we push back against uh, Chinese uh, uh, expansion and influence in the hemisphere? And one of the things that I think the book is useful for doing is contextualizing both the ways in which our strategy, our sort of monodoctrine, great power exclusion strategy, both its successes and failures in the region. And so in a lot of ways, it was at the kind of highest level a success story. We did uh, effectively eliminate all the other great powers from the region and cement our own kind of hegemony. Um, but in a lot of ways, it was also a failure because American leaders, for the most part, did not want to be intervening militarily in their neighbors. And we nevertheless did quite a lot of that uh, in a sort of misguided nation building uh, attempt. And so I think in sort of thinking through policy options today, it's important to look back and say, see at what worked and what didn't. And also to understand, frankly, uh, the way that the re region thinks about the Monroe Doctrine, right? I mean, for most Americans, you say Monroe Doctrine, and immediately the reaction is, ah, yes, I vaguely recall something about that from U.S. history class. Um, you say the same words in Latin America, and it's a just completely different reaction because there's this sort of sense that the phrase stands for American domination and uh, exploitation, particularly economically, of the region. And so... Uh, one of the things that I think is worth understanding is that Americans may have forgotten about the occupation of Haiti, the occupation of the Dominican Republic and other interventions, but the Haitians haven't, the Dominicans haven't. And so in forming our foreign policy today, we need to be sort of cognizant of that historical legacy to make sure that we um, don't, for instance, unnecessarily antagonize our neighbors by using, you know, a phrase, the Monroe Doctrine, that uh, has different associations for them than it does for us. But does it really ultimately matter? Um, Sean, we did a show with Robert Kagan. You're, of course, familiar with his work. I think politically, you're probably on a relatively similar page. He has a history of American foreign policy between 1900 and 1941, the ghost of the feast, America and the collapse of the world order, which charts the rise of America as a great power. The, that's the dominant narrative, as you suggested at the beginning, with or without Latin America, it doesn't really make any difference, does it? I mean, what did America win or lose from its domination of, of its, its own hemisphere? Who cares? I mean, obviously, the Haitians care, the Dominicans care, 
the El Salvadorians care, certainly the Mexicans care, but why should Americans care? So the point that I make in the book, um, and I think this is something we sort of started to discuss a little bit earlier, but what the United States was able to do through essentially a century's worth of foreign policy was to become what's called a regional hegemon. And in sort of policy terms, that means that it was able to become the only great power in its neighborhood. And the reason that matters is uh, that it essentially, from kind of a realist great power politics perspective, makes a nation invulnerable. If you don't have a great power in your any other great power in your neighborhood, you're essentially untouchable. Um, and what this means is that you can then uh, you don't have to have a significant military presence at home. You can send your military abroad, to, including to fight in conflicts halfway around the world, uh, because you're just not as worried about sort of the the threat uh, at your gates. And the United States, I think Americans sort of just take it for granted that we don't have to worry about a great power threat, you know, in Mexico or, or on our borders or anywhere. No, Ukraine. Also, that's obviously the Cuban Missile Crisis. Except for the Cuban Missile Crisis. But the Cuban Missile Crisis sort of emphasizes the right, point. Right, no, like, that's what I meant. I mean, it, it underlines your yeah. point that when someone does place missiles... We freak out. I mean, and it's remarkable because, you know, from if you flip the, the the mirror and sort of look at it from Russia's perspective or Soviet Union's perspective, we had many missiles in in the, the in Europe, right, all around Russia's borders. And so I'm sure from the Soviets perspective, it was sort of like, how on earth can these Americans get so upset about a couple of nuclear missiles in Cuba when they're doing the exact same thing to us many you know times over in Europe? But the answer is that this has just always been part of sort of the American strategy and, frankly, a significant source of American power. One of the points that I make in the book is that because there was no great power threat in the hemisphere, in both World War One and World War Two, we are able to essentially fight those wars on foreign soil uh, in ways that really were beneficial uh, or at least could have been much worse for the American economy, for the American military, for the American people. And then during the Cold War... Um, Again, Cuban Missile Crisis is a big exception. There's obviously other kind of aspects of the Cold War that was were being fought out in Latin America. But for the most part, uh, the Cold War, our strategy was to contain the Soviet Union. And I think the question that sometimes isn't asked is, why isn't, wasn't it the reverse? Why wasn't the Cold War fought with the Soviet Union trying to contain the United States? And I think part of the answer is simply that we are a regional hegemon. We are able to position all of our forces in Europe, right at the Soviet uh, Union's borders, right at the Iron Curtain. And uh, as a result, uh, this was essentially a conflict that was sort of fought on our terms and ultimately to our victory. And it's in part because of our privileged position in the hemisphere that that was true. Um, again, as sort of demonstrated by the way that how touchy we became whenever the Soviets did try to do anything in our hemisphere. Touchy Americans. Uh... Sure, never heard of them. Uh, finally, uh, in my conversation with Ada Ferrer, who's part Cuban, um, we talked about how the American Cuban American relationship could have been written by a Latin American novelist in a sort of magical realism. I wonder whether there's a, a magical realist quality to US Latin American relations. Um, old friend of mine is Moises Naim, the former finance minister of Venezuela, now very authoritative. Mm -hmm writer on power and great power politics. He has a new book out, The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. Amongst those autocrats, I think he would include Donald Trump. He learned about autocracy from Venezuela. Is, in an odd way, the Latin American model of autocracy 
um, coming to haunt America in its crisis of democracy in the 2020s? So that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the um, one of the side effects of U.S. interventionism in Latin America was that we ended up, as I mentioned before, occupying a number of nations and heavily involved in their politics. And the argument that I make in the book is that the United States more than anything wanted to sort of stabilize and strengthen these nations so that they could present a better barrier to uh, European imperialism. And one of the ways that we tried to do this, I mean, on the one hand, we set up uh, to you know, greater or lesser extents, democratic governments, right? Republican governments that in theory at least sort of had the support of the will of the people. But the other thing that we did is we set up these constabularies, which are these kind of half military, half police kind of uh, armed forces. Uh, and the idea was that these forces would act as sort of um, neutral, nonpartisan uh, forces that would help protect the regimes that we had set up, these sort of, you know, like I said, democratic or at least vaguely democratic regimes from rebels, from revolutions, and in general kind of give the countries the stability that we thought they needed. The problem was, of course, that we didn't do a very good job with this. We didn't really think through the consequences. And so after we ended up withdrawing from the region in the 1920s and the 1930s, what ended up happening is a lot of these constabularies that we had set up ended up launching coups and taking over the governments and leading to these decade-long uh, autocracies. And so the sort of Latin American, I mean, you've had dictators in Latin America, obviously, since the very beginning, but some of the most famous kind of names, you know, everything from Papa Doc to the Somozas to Trujillo, I mean, these are all folks that in one way or another, you can sort of trace their rise to power back to U.S. interventions in the region. And so um, this is sort of an incomplete answer to your question, but I think the U.S. foreign policy towards the region a century ago in a large way sort of contributed to the kind of rise of these Latin American autocracies that, as you know, today, I mean, there's kind of a, um, maybe not in the same way, but that sort of uh, autocratic movement is, is, is on the march again.